Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. New York-based Apola Aquino is a natural storyteller. It's hard not to be enthralled, listening to this filmmaker speak and watching her videos for clients like Lululemon, CIBC, Samsung, 23andMe, and the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. She grew up in Alberta and spent most of her childhood moving around with her young mother. An avid surfer, sports and activity have always been in her blood, from competitive gymnastics to professional dancing. Apola eventually settled in New York in 2007 to pursue her dancing career before finding herself a filmmaker instead. In this episode, we discuss her childhood and parents at length, the reality of being an independent filmmaker, her solo female documentary travel series, A Woman's Guide to the World, where she sailed to Antarctica in a hundred-year-old sailboat and winter surfed in New Zealand, a new film project centered on a transgender woman working in the Alberta oil fields, and more. Please enjoy this incredibly moving conversation with the heartfelt and expressive Apola Aquino. Apola Aquino, welcome to The Craft. Live from New York. Yeah, it's raining here, so there might be a slight delay every now and again, but um, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited for this conversation. And uh, I was thinking about how we met and we met through our amazing mutual friend, Melania Dela Cruz, who was also a podcast guest on the show. And this was years yep. ago. You were here in Vancouver. It was either a visit or you were still living here. Um, but all I remember from that, that one meeting way back in the day was I just loved your adventurous spirit, um, being a documentary filmmaker, avid surfer, and you had just such a wonderful presence. So it always stuck with me. Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, Melania is the great connector, and I've known her since 2002, I believe. And, you know, my my crew up in Vancouver are my family, and so I consistently um, make time each year to be up there and nourish those relationships because mm-hmm. I, I found, find that the older that we get, the more we certainly need to nurture those relationships, and I really value um, long-term relationships as well. People that I've known for over 10 years, there is something so magical in that. And so like everything else, they take a little bit of work mm-hmm. and effort. Mm-hmm. It is really lovely to look back on on your friendships and when you realize how long some of them are and, you know, 10, 15 years and, you know, it makes you feel like you've done something right to have wonderful people in your life for, for that long who've seen you through so many things. Yeah, I mean, I agree, unless they're all crazy, too, and you're just all, you know, (laughs) enabling each other. But I don't think that's the case with my friend group. (laughs) Oh, well, it's such a privilege to reconnect with you this way, me here in Vancouver and and you in New York. Uh, How is it feeling in New York now that everything has opened up? It's almost like... everyone has just kind of been tiptoeing around. Everything is back to normal, but everyone's like, are we going to get caught? Like what's happening right now? And no, there was no like big gong that's gone off that says, okay, COVID's over here. I mean, 
I expected us to be a lot more in shock and having a lot more PTSD. Mm. Um, and, but it just feels like we're quietly all back to normal. And I mean, I think most the city is like 70% fully vaccinated now. And so everything has basically begun to open back up at full capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're, we were kind of like the Wuhan of North America. And when, when you, you know, I live out at the ocean, at the beach. And so when you saw that, the, um, that Navy ship, the hospital ship come by, that was really intense for us. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with everyone kind of being a potential, death threat to you very early on before we even understood it. Um, yeah, it was really a shocking experience being here. And, um, you know, of course, my most of my white community uh, didn't get as heavily impacted as, um, you know, some of our, you know, indigenous and people of color, those communities here. And, you know, I heard something really great recently that when America sneezes the black people get pneumonia Mm. and so I always try to remember that when I think oh gosh I was so privileged during COVID and I'm I you know I lost my job at the time but um that actually just kind of pushed me off onto my own so Mm -hmm. that was a ended up being a really important um push for me I think I think COVID kind of closed a lot of those chapters for us and and forced our, us into a new way of being if we were lucky and if we were healthy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was it something you were talking about you know losing losing your job was it something that you're already feeling that you know you wanted to go back out on your own anyway and this was definitely. just that push yeah definitely uh we for me I have been such an independent filmmaker for so long that I've gotten to do a lot of what I wanted to do and the stories I wanted to tell and, but didn't have, didn't know where my rent was coming from month to month. So I got all, a lot of artistic expression out, but I was getting a lot more stressed out, um, you know, in terms of as I got older and it wasn't as cute anymore to be in my late thirties and be like, oh gosh, I don't know if I can go out and eat with my friends at a dinner. Um, So what I realized was um, a couple of things. So the steady income looked attractive to me, but also where I wanted to go next in my career, I thought I needed to have clients and networks and, you know, projects that someone could look at my CV and, and read it and understand it. Whereas when I was doing everything independently, raising the money, writing, directing, producing, um, people couldn't really understand what it is that I did because I was wearing so many hats. Um, I don't, that's not flabbergasting to me, but it certainly was for some people in the industry. And so I thought, well, let me, let me get a CV together that looks like other directors as CVs. So, oh yeah, big clients, commercial work, uh, you know, film festivals. And, and from there I would be able to go off back on my own, work independently and do, you know, the more ambitious projects that I'm wanting to do. So I went in-house as the head of production, head director at um, a company called Narratively here in New York City, and basically started up their whole video department and worked there for about three years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then 
once I was let go, it was, um, you know, I just knew right away how to how to find my footing again because I had always been so scrappy and you know the hustle mm-hmm. was strong. I'm curious to know when you went in house, what was that experience like for you? Did you like it or did you realize that you were more of an independent spirit that was scrappy? Um, no, I work really well. You know, I went to when I moved to New Zealand. Um, for love, I I thought, okay, I'll move there because I'll for sure get a job at Weta, Peter Jackson's, you know, visual effects company. And I know enough about film, I'll be able to fit in somewhere there. And I walked into that job interview and, and the guy interviewing me had his feet up on the desk and looked at my resume and basically said, like, you know, you've you've been independent for so long, I don't think that you'll be able to fit in in-house because you're not gonna be able to handle like the bureaucracy well. And, you know, I'd had times in my life where I didn't have enough money. And so instead of waiting tables, I came back to Alberta, asked my dad for a job in the in the oil patch and I was selling oil field equipment, used oil field equipment. And so I said to him, I was like, well, if I can go to the prairies of Alberta, small town and figure out how to sell oil field equipment, I think I can handle whatever bureaucracy there is in this company. Um, So that really stuck with me. I did not get that job. And I just thought, okay, for someone to see that I can actually, you know, be counted on for years, and I, because I know I could be counted on for years, I, I took that job. And um, so the experience was that I was burnt out a lot of the time. And apparently that's quite common for creatives who go in-house. Uh, you know, we'd be, I was on the road shooting a lot, pitching while shooting. I remember giving notes on videos while on a shoot and just, feeling so overwhelmed and and needing some extra support and and just not having the time, you know, because it was, there was more, it was more bottom line driven when you're working for someone else's company. And since I was responsible for the budgets, it was hard to make that time and sit in the editing room and really edit, which is where a huge part of the storytelling comes out of. And you know, I was, I would sit for a little bit, but I was getting pulled off into new pitches and new shoots. And so the biggest difference now being on my own is that I really can make my own schedule and the bottom line stops with me. And so if I decide to invest more time in this project and in the editing part, then that's how it's going to be. I'll make a little less money that month, but I feel like the investment is just put in the right place. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Alberta, and I'd love to to go back to that uh, because you were you grew up there, and so I'd love to know. Tell me more about your family. Tell me more about your parents. So, I was born in Calgary, and my parents divorced when I was one. So I think from there, we might have gone to live with my dad's, all of us moved to my dad's family in Cam's possibly. Um, 
And then, but most of the time I spent in a place called Sherwood Park, which is a suburb of Edmonton, because my mom's parents lived there. And so that was kind of like a home base for us. If I, when I think about where I grew up, I say Edmonton mm. and more specifically Sherwood Park. So uh, we had young parents as we did in the eighties. Um, and so my mom, she wanted to go and uh, I think get her some bachelor's degree in Quebec um, when I was from five until eight years old. So those four years. So we would move from Sherwood Park to Quebec, somewhere in Quebec, various places um, for her school year. So September until April. And then we would move back to Sherwood Park, driving in this old Cadillac, um, live in Sherwood Park from April until you know August. And so we were usually going to two schools a year. Um, and what really stands out to me about that time is that moving at five years old to a place that was a completely different language. My older sister had had, I think, a year and a half of French immersion training by that point in Sherwood Park, but um, I hadn't. I started kindergarten in Quebec. So the part of the ability to just pick up and move or travel somewhere for a long period of time, which I've done multiple times in my life, I think comes a little bit from that. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of um, hard times that came from that experience, but as an adult, it's serving me in that I don't have a fear of just picking up and moving. And I think that is hard for some people and harder, especially the older you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to feel rooted somewhere, call somewhere home. Yeah. Mm. yeah. What else was difficult about that? Oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, being very far from my dad was a really challenging thing. Um, and yeah, the, the, the language was a hard thing. And my mom just being so young and going to school and she was playing on the college basketball team. And, um, so I remember, you know, we were kind of latchkey kids, um, and, that was hard, but I got into gymnastics at a very young age, like at, before even moving to Quebec. So I would go from school to gymnastics. Um, you know, we were, my sister and I were very independent from a really young age. And I remember that first day in Ramouski, Quebec, so a very, very French part of Quebec. That was our first location. My mom, we must have moved there a couple days before the start of her school year. And she walked me to school to where my kindergarten would be the day before school and said, okay, tomorrow I have to go to my university, but this is how you get to school and walked me to my preschool or kindergarten rather. And, and then from there at noon, you're going to get let out and then you're going to walk to your preschool or your after school thing. So she showed me that route and then back to the family we were staying with. Mm. So that really strikes me as um, intense now. Um, and so I remember I did that the first day of school, walked myself there. And it's so vivid to me because I remember sitting in a rocking chair, one of those old one, wooden ones. So it had that space between you know all the slots in the back and some of the boys 
were giggling and whispering. And then someone came over and pinched my bum through the rocking chair. And it was so upsetting that I remember after school, I walked to where my after school care was. And I looked through these gates and I just had so much terror about walking through those gates and going mm. to another kind of program that I, at five, scratched my arm until it started to bleed and then went home to our, the, the family we were staying with. And I said, they did this at the preschool. And so like how interesting that I lied at five years old, like it, it's just such a, you know, what, what that little kid must have been going through. And mm. so, you know, that, that made me so independent, but it also sometimes now when I see children who are five years old, it strikes me how tiny they are. And the thought of them walking to school on their own is, is pretty, um, yeah, a little heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And what was your mother like? She is tall, um, very, you know, we were sent to school with like 10 pounds of glass for our lunch. Like we had no plastic. Everything was in these glass Pyrex containers. <laughs> and, um, so very aware of the planet from the beginning. You know, we didn't have, I don't think she gave us sugar until we were five, no brown foods, grew up with, you know, beet juice and carrot juice. And, um, and she was a champion of diversity. So our best friends as little kids were these two Vietnamese boys who had come over quite recently in, that was in Sherwood Park. We, at Christmas time, she would take us to the black church and we would be a part of that community. She was always, always around indigenous communities and sometimes working in their schools and um, giving them some, uh, you know, bringing some almonds, some stuff for the kids that didn't have any food with them. Um, in in uh, Quebec, one of my closest friends one year was this uh, a young Brazilian girl. And I remember, you know, my mom really helped fostering that relationship. And I went to that girl's house and I think she lived with multiple siblings and her parents in a small, maybe one bedroom apartment. And, and that was so striking to me. Um, and when we moved that time from Quebec, you know, we also didn't have that much money. I remember going to the mall and saying like, mom, I gotta have that sweater. The one that looks like the Easter egg, like I gotta, <laughs> I gotta. And she's like, you know, we'll, we'll come back in a few months when it's on sale. And, you know, and we came back and it was on sale. It was probably too hot to wear at that time, but I got that, you know, horrendous sweater so we were she was very thrifty and the other prized possession I had was this pink Barbie stereo and so as we packed up our car to move back to Sherwood Park at the end of her school year I was like oh where's my where's my Barbie stereo and she says well I gave it to the Brazilian family mm. I was like why she's like because they're poor I was like but we're poor <laughs> <laughs> So she, all we just, that was just so natural around, you know, for us. And even though she was a, a white woman, she just always had that, um, 
yeah, she's got an amazing heart. She, her sister, her older sister died when my mom was 16 and her older sister, um, right after graduation was driving through Jasper with I think her boyfriend and a couple of friends and whether I'm not sure if they were drinking or if someone just fell asleep at the wheel and but they like crashed off of the cliff and and oh, wow. died and so she was 18 and you know my mom left at 16 now the eldest of I think eight siblings mm. I think that was one of the most defining moments for my mom for the rest of her life so um I think you know she's my mom's always kind of had one foot up in the spiritual world and one foot on earth and um but I think she did a pretty decent job raising my sister and I mm -hmm. and of, of course there's been a lot of work done a lot of self-reflection and um there was I think a, a tendency sometimes to be uh, feel like a victim and um and like, and I, I know that like her, maybe there was a feeling of lack. That's something that I really, whenever I get really anxious and stressed about like any, if there's no contract coming in yet, or what's the next job, or, you know, I'm getting low on money. I sometimes notice I go to maybe that more familiar family feeling of like, oh God, I don't know what's, and I just think, no, that's might've been where I come from, but I, I really believe that there's a flow in this world and I'm, I work hard and I trust that the next job is going to come. So how about I just relax right now, now that I have, a, you know, some time mm -hmm. um, because I'm not rushing from one shoot to the next right now. It's so beautiful to be able to have a little bit of um, recuperation after yeah. each. Yeah. Project. I mean, abundance comes in a lot of of different forms. I was speaking to somebody about that. And, you know, we often think of abundance as, as financial, but sometimes it's like, you know, um, when I was starting my sound therapy practice, I had a wonderful friend that was like, hey, well, I have a photography studio. Like, you can use this space to start off, you know, and that is abundance. And that's where I, I practice out of now. And we've, we've worked out, you know, um, you know, how that works between us. And, but, you know, it was so, I, I didn't, you know, and, and you, you realize that it, it it's a wonderful favor, but yeah, yeah, you never really think of it as like, oh yeah, that that too is abundance when when somebody does that for you. Yeah, and I think this is such a new concept since you know since the industrial complex took over. That's when we started to trade only in money and materials versus what you're talking about. Where hey, I have. An extra cow or I've got extra kale or whatever like mm -hmm. let's treat you have that I have this like let's let's trade in other ways mm -hmm. um so that 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 is so correct to think about that abundance yeah. and in so many ways and also when you're not miserable you're not um part of the consumerism machine as much because you're not you're not feeling uh as separate from yourself Mm -hmm. and thinking oh I gotta I gotta, gotta fill it with things that feeling mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly mm -hmm. and so I think that I think that actually there's been um part of the system is to keep us so exhausted that yeah we just stay on this the teat of capitalism if you will <laughs> right yeah and feeding off of it whereas if we when we slow down we're more intuitive we maybe take care of ourselves better and it's just like who's making money off of that? Right, right. 
joy in in different forms that you you wouldn't think yeah yeah mm-hmm. and your dad what was what's he like um Italian, uh, a son of immigrants, angry, um, mean, generous, sweet, racist, sexist, loving. Mm. Mm -hmm. Very hardworking, workaholic. Mm -hmm. Quick to rage. Um, somehow has, you know, empowered feminist daughters in spite of it all. Mm. And because of it all, like he is, when I look at the patriarchy, I mean, I have, I have one of the prime examples right there in my family. And, um, so that's, that's a complicated feeling and, I realized very recently that we were always, I was doing so much of the work to meet him wherever he was. And um, and I'm just realizing now that like, okay, but when it's harmful to me, that's when I am gonna take a break or I'm not going to be um, meeting him everywhere he is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and just, uh, really appreciating how um, how connect, deeply connected I am with my sisters because I can see now how he has tried to almost like in a way sometimes turn us against each other hmm. and we have just never allowed that to happen like he's recently gave us a massive piece of news and he told my other sisters first days and days before telling me and when I finally found out from when he told me, um, I was really angry at my sister for not telling me the news earlier. And I just thought, whoa, is that ever misplaced? Mm. The anger should be on him that he put her in that position and that he's the one that caused all this confusion and sadness. And, um, And so I just dug so deep in my heart. I was like, okay, how can I reconnect with my sister right now and not let this man's toxicity affect our love for each other? And I just, and you know what it was, what the key in was, was to actually ask her how she was doing and to be able to listen to her from wherever place she was at and saying like, I'm feeling this way about the circumstance, but I'm very interested to hear how you're feeling about it. And um, I'm open to, you know, hearing, even if you're happy about this news, whatever it is, I just, I would love to hear your thoughts. And, um, and so that was really beautiful. So I just feel like that was a win. Um, there's this great book called Burnout, Completing the Stress Cycle about with, um, by two sisters, Emily and Amelia Nagoski, and I cannot recommend it enough. Mm. It's like a, a, a manual and a manifesto and um it says you know what can you do every day to crush the patriarchy in the smallest way it doesn't matter some days i say okay i'm going to go outside and i'm not going to feel 
bad about my body what whatsoever mm. to that day i'm going to even though um that man has pitted me against another woman i am going to connect with that woman on the heart from a heart place mm. and so I, I guess I feel very fortunate that I got to see toxic masculinity up close. I wasn't sent out into the world thinking like, oh, it's an equal, wonderful place. Yeah. Um, you know, I could feel that the game was rigged. And mm. I think that's a really important part of um, my work and my life in general. Right. Yeah. You saw reality right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can understand that for sure. And in you as a child, what were what were you like? And I'm curious to know, you're such a, I mean, the filmmaking, the storytelling, were you a storyteller from a very young age? No, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I also, you know, Alberta is not known for its artists, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> except Nickelback, which is, you know, the most blue collar <laughs> kind of art you can get. So it's not like I knew, I didn't know that there was anything, I didn't know what creativity was or that you could be creative or what that feeling even was, I don't think. I knew what emotions were and feelings were because I was a sensitive human being who had feelings, but um, I was really strong. I look back and uh, when I see myself in these photos, like um, I look really strong and awesome like my sister and I just look like two little badasses um (laughs) like just very very active I mean what a gift to have grown up in the early 80s where we could just play in cul-de-sacs and with no fear I mean hockey out on the in the ice and just you know had such an outdoorsy active childhood and you know I remember watching maybe a little bit of cartoons on Saturdays, but TV wasn't a part of our daily lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up also a lot of the times with very strict grandparents. And so there were a lot of chores, a lot of gardening. um, And then, yeah, just competitive gymnastics. So I just think I always probably knew that my outlet was going to be physically. And I don't remember any sort of like artistic expression. Um, and I've never really asked my mom that I would say that she, she's quite creative and she's quite artistic, but I, but, but not in ways that I see, like she doesn't draw or paint. And it's just kind of how she lives her life is very creative. Mm. Um, and then when I was 14, I got, um, acute tendonitis in both Achilles. So I was laid out flat from gymnastics and, that's when I started dancing. And I think that is like gymnastics isn't really creative. It's very disciplined and very, you know, hardcore training, but that's when I started dancing. Um, And at that age, it wasn't exactly like it was artistic, but that was the first time I met like two outwardly gay men who ran the dance studio. And I was like, well, they are living in a very unique way and, and expressing themselves in different ways. And, you know, in, and then I went and worked at West Edmonton Mall at Le Chateau. Oh my gosh, I remember that shop. <laughs> at 16. And that, I think, was the first time I saw what artists look like. And of course, like, it's what a cliche, but like, I found my tribe. We could listen to the music that we wanted to. 
you know, one of my best friends, Ted Kerr, is now living in New York City, and he and I have known each other since 96 West Edmonton Mall, and mm -hmm. um, it's like he's my only childhood friend. It's a really important friendship, and that was just such an important formative time for me mm. was um, working with like our boss was a black man. We had a huge amount of Asian women on our staff. We had some white gay men. We probably had some queer white women. It was just very like such an eclectic crowd. And we would go out and party together yeah. um, at Reds in West Ed and talk about Alanis Morissette, Lauren Hill. Um, yeah, it was just such a great time. And so I think that's when I really started to think about it. And then I had an English teacher who I think saw something in me and asked me to be in the play Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I kind of kicked myself, but this is so like me. I was working so much at the job. I was like, I can't do the Juliet part. It's just too much work right now, too much on my plate, but I'll play Lady Capulet. Mm. And and so then I think that that was kind of what led me towards, um, you know, a career in the performing arts and entertainment. Mm. Um, but the storytelling part, I, it's it's kind of cool that I don't have training in it because I I find I tell stories how I want to tell them now, mm. and I think I think that kind of that has its own style in my work. So. Um, I don't know if it's really done in three acts, but I like how I'm slowly finding my storytelling voice. It certainly doesn't feel um, as linear as um, other filmmakers. Like, I just think it's it's got its own tone. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm just excited every day to figure that out more, like how to tell a story. Right, right. And then what, did you end up going to school or did, did you finally pick up a camera? No, I went and auditioned for the National Film School mm. um, and probably was dreadful <laughs> at 18. And and so then I didn't end up going to school. I moved to Vancouver, um, did some acting training there and was dancing there. But then I found that I was um, I had quite a bit of depression in my early 20s. So I was I kind of wasn't performing as much and just focusing more on I was teaching yoga at the time. I was teaching gymnastics. Um, and then I, I took off for India for a couple of years, um, India and Nepal. And, and then when I came back from India and Nepal, that's when I started dancing again. And then I found um, some Broadway style classes at Harbor Dance in Vancouver with Lee Torlage. And I really, I felt like I found my mojo. That style of dancing, that kind of theatrics was calling me. Um, and then that's what led me to move to New York City because I just was like, I got to dance in like Bob Fosse type stuff on Broadway. And so then 2007 at 27, I moved to New York to pursue a career in professional dance. Wow. <laughs> and then from there, I had a really like, I was always kind of acting and, and learning um, and then my great mentor, Larry Moss, who I worked with for 10 years, he told me early on in my training, he said, you know, it's not enough to be a woman in this business. You've got to be writing and producing and directing your own work. Otherwise, you're just a pawn and, you know, you're, you'll age out so soon and men will be taking advantage of 
you and you just the story doesn't end well and mm. so I'm so glad he told me that at such an early age like 28 29 because I started producing around mm. that time and even though I still wanted to be more the performer um using my the business side of things like that was just such an important transition for me because I actually found that I wanted to have more say over the bigger picture as opposed to just being the hired hand or the performer. Right, just a part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the creator yeah. of it all. When, when um, uh, his name was Larry? Yeah. Yes. When he gave you that advice, what was, what was your first reaction to it? Did you feel overwhelmed with that, him telling you that? Or you were you more like, oh, no, this, this is realistic advice and I'm going to take it? Yeah, it made sense because, no, I didn't have an adverse reaction to it. Um, There's so few lucky people in the arts and, and I was not going to be one of those people. So it was very helpful to know that I could have more of um, more control over what I did Mm -hmm. and And the thing with the acting and the auditioning was that it was really hard because you could do eight hours of work a day for a year and not see a result come out of that result, meaning like a paying job, whereas producing, writing, directing, I put in the same amount of work and I see products at the end of that. I see, you know, I've made a living. And so for me, that just it gave me a lot more control. Producing my own stuff just made so much more sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I just was able to, um, you know, find financial support through sponsorship or through some investors. Um, And I just started small Mm -hmm. and I just kept building from there. Yeah. I wanted to um, touch on uh, when I was doing my, my, research, I ended up watching uh, a video that you did for 23andMe on your your ancestry. And I was just thinking about your adventurous spirit. And uh, you had discovered, as you were telling in this this video, that after your grandmother had passed, you had found out that she had been an extremely adventurous young woman and is very likely where you got your your own sense of travel and adventure from. What was that like when you when you found out that that she had this type of spirit too. Yeah, that was at her funeral where we were just watching the slideshow of her, you know, in Africa, in at Jerusalem, in um, in Europe, in just really incredible locations. And it was, I think, a photo that she was on a horse somewhere, and some relative just kind of nudged me and said, "That's where you get your adventurous spirit from." And, you know, it's just such a tragedy that grandparents die before we're old enough to really ask them these questions and get Mm -hmm. to know them. And of course, their own children, our parents are also, you know, selfish children, and they don't really ask their parents enough stories. So we're just, those stories are lost. Um, But she was just feisty. So with that film, I got to go and shoot with my grandma's cousins in Drumheller and got to find out from them what it was like to grow up with my grandma. So what was my grandma like as a young girl? And boy, did she have a mind of her own. 
This was one powerful woman. And I always knew that, but she was a Métis girl and then woman who was trying to fit in with like a Lutheran white community. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that that was who she was. Um, so, you know, she was playing hockey intensely as a kid, um, you know, skating in skates that were way too big for her, um, would, was swimming in the river a lot. Um, I think I heard a story during filming that my grandma's, the dog was too scared to go in the river. And so my grandma pretended like she was drowning. So the dog would come in and try to save her. And that was how she got the dog to swim with her. But, you know, my grandma did teach me how to dive. She taught me how to swim to a certain extent. Like there were, there were some things she certainly passed on to me. And, um, you know, as she was, just before she passed away, I had gone on my first big adventure for A Woman's Guide to the World where I filmed. And I went to Antarctica on a hundred year old sailboat, like a training ship. And I had sent the video to my aunt and um, she was showing my grandma in the hospital um, many times. I think my grandma wanted to watch it often. And, and I was able to make it up there for her last you know, few days. Um, and she was very weak. This is how strong she was. She was diagnosed with cancer and was just such a naturalist. She didn't want chemotherapy. She didn't want any medication. And so instead she went on a hunger strike and she died of starvation. So she just didn't want any of the cancer, like the, the treatments, she just wanted to kind of, she was ready to go. Mm. Um, so she was pretty weak at the end, but you know, I, when I gave her my final hug, she, um, she said, you know, I've loved watching your adventures. And I'm so proud of you. And then I said, I'm the favorite, right? And then she <laughs> laughed. <laughs> you know, she has a lot of awesome grandchildren. And, you know, out of that, I'm just so glad I went to her um, and got and spent that time with her at the very end. I, I realized I would have really regretted it had I not made that effort. And, you know, to me, that's what made COVID such a sad, sad um, virus was that People couldn't see their grandparents mm -hmm. when they were, you know, about to pass away. And um, it was so touching when people were donating iPads so that they could FaceTime. But um, yeah, so I was very lucky that I got to see her. And, and she, I just like, I feel like I have a really strong relationship to her now. And, and she was such a, she just had so many struggles. Mm -hmm. uh, she loved beer. Um, she was not a soft woman, like, and I think that her kids maybe suffer a little bit from that, but, um, I think she and I were both born in the year of the monkey. And so we always connected. We always massage each other's feet. Mm. Um, she had a booming laugh and, you know, she never told us her stories of growing up Métis, but I, I know that there was a lot of racism. There was a lot of like RCMP misconduct with her and with her group with her community um it just wasn't something that 
people were proud of in those days, specifically Métis also, of course, all indigenous people suffer from this, but um, the Métis, I think, feel very much like the half, she had half breed on her birth certificate. Like that's what was written there. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I wish I knew more about that, but I think that she instilled in certainly my mom and in us, like a, a way of living with the planet that is a little bit more of an indigenous way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're very connected to the ocean. You're an avid surfer. So, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm, from Alberta? From Alberta, yeah. What, what but you... I always loved water. Mm. What about water? Is it for I... you? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm an Aries, which I think is a fire sign. So I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense, but um, I love swimming pools. I love baths. I love rivers. Every, I had, I never met a glacier lake that I haven't jumped into. Like my mom was very um, proactive in raising us around glacier lakes. So we were always swimming in those. And, and then, yeah, surfing was just like, just feels so natural because I, I'm, I'm very athletic and I love the ocean. Um, I retired as a professional dancer, but I wanted to have something else in my life that was, um, you know, keep me going as an athlete. And it's just the most perfect sport, perfect hobby, because you get a workout, you get to be connected to the ocean in a way that you cannot be in any other activity in nature. Like you're not going hiking and putting a bunch of dirt in your mouth or down your nose. <laughs> when you're snowboarding, you get a bit of snow in your mouth, but like, you know, surfing this morning, my nose got flushed out multiple times. Like you're swallowing the water. It's just, it gets in you and, and you're so connected to what's happening um, with the planet. Like you're engaging with the color of the water all the time. Mm. Like I could feel when New York City is, you know, when it rains, you know, when there's just a lot of trash in the water. And, you know, I'm so shocked that so many surfers, you know, eat fish. Cause I just think, what do you like, this is our home. Like mm. we're, we're, we're just pillaging the ocean. And I would certainly wish more surfers were a little bit more aware of like how that is affecting the thing that we all love to do the most. Mm -hmm. like all the surf all surfers do is try to just figure out their lives so they can surf more of the time yes all the all the hardcore ones are, are definitely like that it's, yeah. it's one of those I you're talking about it and describing it and talking about the water you know getting in your in your nose and your mouth it, it's it really is an immersive experience and I'm not good I love doing it when I can get the chance to go out to 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 Fino um and it's also really unpredictable. No two waves are the same. So you you don't know what it's going to be like out there for you. No, it, I mean, it's the learning curve is probably this one of the steepest in terms of learning an activity or a sport. Um, and it's not like you take, you go out and you feel the connection like you would if you are hitting a golf ball or learning how to play tennis. At least you can like, get that connection and feel what it's like to actually play the sport. You can be out there paddling around and not catch a wave, mm -hmm. which is why I suggest a lot of people, um, you know, go with someone who can push them into a wave or take an, a lesson. Otherwise you just, you lose your stoke too fast and you're like, this is too hard. I can't do it. It is so hard. Yes. 
and there's nothing you can do that can train you for it. Even like if I have had a hiatus of a couple of months, like there's nothing like the surf muscles. You've just, the only way to get stronger at surfing is to just, to just surf more. Yeah. To do it more and more. Hmm. I wanted to touch on, I wanted to go back to the series you did, A Woman's Guide to the World. And, you know, you you did a surf trip out there. You you talked about being on, on the on the hundred year old ship. What made you want to do this series? Well, I had written, directed, produced, raised the money for uh, and starred in the a feature film called The New York Love Story. And I wrote it during a time when I was a troubled dancer in New York City and I was dating someone who was terrible for me. And, um, and we were kind of having this weird open relationship. He was another dancer. Uh, and I just wanted to make the film because it, I just felt like a real love story was missing in, you know, in the zeitgeist, like a story that doesn't end well. And um, and like a, a story that was full of red flags that were ignored. So I made this humble little film and I had such a terrible experience with the distribution company um, and actually like the post-production house. So I went with a company in Vancouver because one of my best friends was now working for this production company, distribution company. And um, she was like, why don't you edit the film here? You can stay with me, we can hang out. And I did, I went up to finish it there. We submitted it for film festivals. It was looking great. People were buying it for different markets. And so it was time to finish it with like music that could then be distributed. Um, I went up to Vancouver and finished the film. So I thought, um, and then found out that instead of delivering it to the boss or the company, the editor I worked with at the company stole that my film and a few other films because the company, I guess, had not paid him for some stuff. Hmm. And throughout that process, I lost my best friend and I had to work to, you know, make another 10, 15 grand to refinish my film based off of like old hard drives I had. So it was a very, very heart-wrenching time. Um, and I had to deliver the final film to them because I had a distribution agreement, yet they got my film stolen. So it was just like this terrible catch-22. And so I just like was so angry. I finished the film and I just handed it over and I, I left for South America um, with the camera. And I just said, you know, whatever I do from now on, like, I want to be able to have all of the ownership over the rights over, I want to just release it for free. Mm. Um, I just like that game was so gross to me with whatever, um, you know, independent film, you can get some really bad independent film distribution. S since then, I've had better, like, better um, distribution companies buy my films or sell my films. And I've actually seen the the reports and I've gotten the money and the royalties. So I've had a great experience as well with a different company. Um, so yeah, at that time, I just had been reading an a mag interview magazine and there was an interview with the novelist who, um, who had gone sailing to Antarctica 
to research this novel. And he said, you know, it was this hundred year old ship. They're training you to sail. Like, so you, they're working you the whole time. And, you know, it's like six guys in one room, one toilet. You just hear like vomiting through the night, like just really grim. And I just had one of those epiphanies that was, as I was reading that, I said, why is it always guys? Mm. This guy did this. It's all guys, 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 men, men, men. And, you know, up to that point, I had loved reading. I had already been up to Mount Everest. I'd already traveled India. I was in Nepal. I was only reading the great mountaineer stories and um, all men. And I just was like, enough's enough. Like, I want to go and do that. And so I found out what ship he went on. There aren't a lot of hundred year old tall ships that go to Antarctica. So I went to the southern tip of Argentina to a town called Ushuaia and got aboard the ship. And at that time, I'd never really operated a camera. Didn't really know what I was going out to shoot. Never shot anything documentary. Everything was narrative up until then. And, you know, in the middle of the night, after a long shift in like eight meter swells, I was so exhausted and ready to go crash. Um, and I just heard this, or I had this feeling, this intuitive voice that said, you know, go and film yourself talking right now about this experience because nothing, no voiceover you could write could match what you're experiencing right now. Like being kind of out of it a little bit, like, what is she saying? And, um, so I just went and this is how amateur I was when I turned the camera around on autofocus, but behind me was a map and it kept like switching focus from my face to the map behind me in, in this shot. And, but the, the, the energy was there, the emotion was there. And of course, like, how could you take a bad shot of Antarctica and icebergs? So <laughs> yes. it was cool. And then I like edited a little bit of a a like short form five minute piece while I was on the bus going up to the Amazon and and it just like yeah it had a vibe to it um and you know even with the New Zealand one it has that one really had a lot of success and was distributed around the world and on airlines and um but I still think in a weird way it's ahead of its time mm. like I've been pitching this May for you know, 10 years yeah. and with big distribution already, you know, attached to it. And um, I just cannot get another one made. Huh. Like, it's just, it's hard. I mean, of course, I'm not a star, um, but even just getting brands to sponsor, but I'm not giving up. I feel like it's, I'm going to get in somewhere. I, I think that a woman's guide to the world, a woman's guide to all of these adventures, there's a place for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's that honestly, perspective. It's my dream. Yeah, it's your dream. Yeah. It's a woman's perspective on on travel. Wouldn't that be wonderful to to see that? I think it'd yeah. Be and you know, guys connect with it too, because for them, like they're not always looking to follow like the macho guy. Like they're not always looking to, loving Anthony Bourdain or now whoever Stanley Tucci is the next guy that gets to travel the world and have all these experiences. Padma Lakshmi has, you know, that's amazing that she was given that opportunity. That's a great series about, um, you know, food and coming from different cultures and like, and then, and look at what she brings to that table. Mm -hmm. 
there are there's indigenous people speaking about indigenous food in their area that she's talking to what it's like to be an immigrant and having a restaurant like there's interesting stories out there like I don't want to see another white old guy traveling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. got to keep the dream alive <laughs> Well, you are, you're actually working on another project that I'd love to touch on. Do you want to tell us more about it? Which one? The, the one in the oil fields? Yes, that one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So part of my, there were a few times in my life where I've gone to a town called Lloydminster. It's on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan. I actually went to grade nine and 10 there when I lived with my dad. And I when I went and sold oil field equipment this, the last time, about five, four or five years ago, I met this woman, a transgender woman who was working on the oil rigs. So those are those really high, um, you know, machines set up to, to drill or to, you know, fix something that's way down low. And so you're there, it's steel everywhere. It's a very dangerous job. You work in all kinds of conditions. And here she is, a transgender woman working on these oil rigs. And when I met her then, we went out for um, dinner and I just said, you know, I would love to, you know, do a video with you at some point, like a short documentary, anything. I just think your story is so fascinating, this kind of work and what you must have gone through in this small town um, working with the, the kind of men that she would be working with and coming out. And, um, and because I have spent many years there off and on as a kid, teenager, adult, um, I know that kind of misogyny and sexism and, um, you know, homophobia that exists there. So um, I just had a kind of a sense of what she must be encountering. So a few years passed, obviously, when I went in-house, they were, we weren't really, there wasn't space to do passion projects that didn't have funding attached to it. And this would be a hard one to attach a brand to. Um, So recently, I was back up in Canada shooting a couple of projects that paid. And I said to myself, like, okay, now's the time. Like, let's just go and take one day and film with her and, um, you know, a small crew and I just decided, okay, I'll pay out of pocket. I'll apply for some grants. Um, and so myself and the director of photography went to Lloydminster. We filmed with Chloe for one 17 hour day. Um, and I've edited that now into a fine cut. It's looking really good. And there was just, um, you know, it, I'm not, I don't think I'm the perfect person to tell a transgender story, but my film is more about a woman working in the oil fields Mm. and the discrimination she faces. I am working, I hired a transgender consultant. Um, So I've been running the film by her a couple of times to just see like, am I off on this? Is is the music too gloomy on this? Like we wanna make sure that we're telling a story of strength and not just like, oh, this poor transgender person life is so hard. And cause she is just so positive and 
so that project, um, once I finish it here in the next week, um, the goal is to send it to some film festivals, definitely have it seen in small towns around North America. Mm. I know there are other women like her out there and girls. Um, as you probably know, this is an unprecedented, unprecedented time for our transgender youth and the legislation against them and their health care. Um, so I just feel like it's really important for them to have representation. Um, and I'm a filmmaker and, and I could, you know, help with that kind of platform. And, um, and I think I, I'm tasteful enough to handle the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, film festivals. And also I'm, I am still applying for some grants to make this into a longer story. I think I know there is a bigger story here. Um, she has a child. She's been through a divorce. She's facing some major discrimination. Um, and she came out in her 40s. And she has to still live in this small town because um, her daughter's there. And she has to keep a roof over their heads. Right. So very, very human. And I feel like a lot of people can relate to it. And what I'm realizing about my the kind of work I do and want to do more of is just show how human we all are. And, you know, if one person who was scared um, of, a tr of a transgender woman before or intimidated or whatever, they might happen to see this and have a little less fear and maybe be able to stare less at these women out in the world. Yeah. Um, and maybe Stephen, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or ask them less inappropriate questions. Like maybe look up, like how, how do I, how can I be an ally to trans people and mm -hmm. just, you know, any awareness or, you know, the, the suicide rate is so high amongst our trans youth and hearing someone who's in their forties talk about this is helpful. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I love it. I'm proud of it. And I hope that we just get as many eyes on it as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And what I was going to going to say is, you know, people who watch this film may even see a bit of themselves in that story too, right? She, she's a parent. Lots of, yeah. Lots of I mean, she tells struggles. a story of, yeah, she tells a story of going and showering at the Husky truck shop before going and seeing her daughter because their hours are long in the oil patch and if she had to go home and come back she just would have lost that half an hour and like that's the story my dad will relate to mm -hmm. so i i just think yeah it's it's very very human yeah well everyone watch the space once uh yes, once this please. is out in, out in the world it's called hard labor because she's now that you know she's been so demoted um mm. and hard to find jobs she's like it's hard labor is all I've ever known. Mm. So the title is hard labor mm -hmm. with a U for Canadian spelling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Patriotic till the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just mindful of the time. I, I have two more questions for you. Um, first of all, I wanted to say thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable um, about, you know, your childhood, the things that you're, You've gone through, um, and my question is, if there is anything that you could say to your mother and your father separately as an adult now, um, to them back then in your childhood, what would you say? 
to each separately. Each separately. Hmm. Yeah, and and if I say it to them, they'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that you want to share from your heart, regardless hmm. of whether they do it or not. I I wish my mom explained things to me more, uh, like how, and asked me how I felt like we're, I'm thinking about moving, like prepared me more. Like, how do you feel about moving somewhere? And like, oh, those feelings you're feeling are very normal, like, and helped me um, understand what my feelings were earlier. Mm. Uh, that would have been very helpful. And my dad, I wish he, you know, that old indigenous proverb about like when all the, you know, when all the stalks have dried up and all the trees have burnt and the oceans are empty, like you'll find that you cannot eat money. I would tell him that, but that also that the, the money is not going to give you the love. Mm -hmm. He's often not chosen the love. Mm. Very powerful. Mm. My final question, I ask every guest this. With what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? An unflinching look at truth. Each truth, all of the, the complexity of truth. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time, for taking this time out of your day and to reconnect again. It's been really wonderful. And Thank uh, you, May. I believe so much in what you're doing and the lens mm -hmm. with which you're uh, offering people with this podcast. So I'm so Thank proud you. of you. I'm so <laughs> proud that you've done over 20 now. Like that's such an accomplishment. I think the universe really celebrates our consistency. Mm. Uh, and you've definitely proven your consistency with the craft. And I, I feel like this is uh, the audience is going to keep growing. Thank you so much. I, I just um, wanted to provide a platform for people to tell their 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 stories and maybe share things that uh, they haven't shared before. So I can't. Who, who is going to do the <laughs> and I'm, I nominate myself for this, but maybe this special a podcast where you're the one that gets interviewed. Oh, I know. Story. I've had a, I've had a few guests ask me already. Um, you know what? I I am up for it. So um, maybe not uh, not this season, but uh, I I would actually love to do that and and sit with someone and and share my story as well. So more to come on when that is. But uh, I can't uh, I can't wait to see the projects that you bring to light the important stories that you you help tell and please yes Thank keep you. me keep me posted on on hard labor yeah well and the it was national indigenous people's day yesterday probably not the yesterday for when this gets released mm -hmm. but so that the video i did for about indigenous tourism is now out so you can watch it so i saw can it choose Indigenous great. tours, mm -hmm. Indigenous companies when they are traveling in yes. Canada. So yes. I'm very support. excited to share that. Yes. Yeah. Well, Thank enjoy you. your your New York evening. It's evening over there now or late yeah. afternoon. And yeah. uh, I hope to speak to you really soon.
Me too. And see you in Vancouver soon too. Yes. Sounds great. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed that last conversation, be sure to check out more episodes of The Craft on Spotify and guest photo galleries on the website at wearethecraft.com. Thanks again for listening.